Hi, everyone. Welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Andrea Pearson, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Joe Lalo. And I'm Lindsay Baroker. And we've got a guest for today's episode. His name is, and I bet nobody in our audience knows who he is. <laughs> His name is Mark Leslie Lefebvre. Uh, he's a horror author, publishing consultant, and the former director of author relations at Kobo. And he's the current, and Mark, you can tell me if this is wrong, director of business development at draft to digital That is my title. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Um, Mark is also a podcaster. Uh, he uh, runs the Stark Reflections podcast for authors. Um, he's got a ton of experience in the book business, and he's seen a lot of data flowing through draft to digital and Kobo. So we're going to be asking him a bunch of questions about... Um, best practices he's seen and um, things that work on other retailers, et cetera. And then we'll also get an update on new features that you might want to take advantage at draft to digital. And yeah, that's, um, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Oh, this is episode th 13 and we are recording in 2019, November for those who are listening in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky 13. <laughs> Lucky 13. Yeah. I don't think we have any updates this week that are pertinent to share though. Um, Actually, Mark, it's, if it's okay, um, is there anything that you're working on currently since we usually give updates at this point? Yeah, I am actually working on a book in my, uh, what am I calling it? The Stark Publishing Solutions imprint. Uh, I did Killing It on Kobo and 7Ps of Publishing Success, and I had to because of the popularity of a couple of podcast episodes. I had to put it into a book, An Author's Guide to Working with Bookstores and Libraries. Okay. And that's actually because I like a tight deadline, uh, deadline to have that out is actually it's up for pre-order for December 10th, 2019. So I better demo finish it. <laughs> have you started writing it then? <laughs> oh God, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm about 75% of the way through. I've even had already had early readers of it before it's done. So oh, awesome. <laughs> it's one of those nano kind of projects. And I was like, ah, let's do something really practical. Nice. Uh, awesome. Yeah. That'll probably be in the story bundle for next year, I'm assuming. Oh, I'm assuming. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of which, that story bundle is still live. Um, Storybundle.com forward slash nano. Mark and I are both in that. And then a bunch of other authors who are really cool too. <laughs> and <laughs> anyway, so let's go ahead and, and jump right into the questions if that's okay with everybody. Yeah. I'm getting can I, can I just say, I feel like I'm, I'm a little bit of a poser here because I am not a six figure author. I'm only a five figure author, but I'm, <laughs> I'm honored that I get to be included in this podcast. So thank you guys very much. Five figure author is still absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Most of my clients are like one figure authors <laughs> for now, for now. It's true. That's why they, that's why I work with them. Um, anyway. Okay. So, uh, all right. Would you go ahead and tell us your history with writing books and authors? Um, you used to run a bookshop, right? Yeah, I've been in the book industry since 1992. So I started as a part-time bookseller in Ottawa, Ontario, um, sort of Christmas help. Uh, I got bitten by the book bug. Um, that was the same year I, I my very first short story appeared in a small press magazine. So, And, uh, and then um, shortly after, I, I received honorable mention in the year's best fantasy and horror, which was, again, for horror stuff that um, um, Ellen Datlow was the editor of that. And so... I I started in you know prior to the internet, so a lot of the stuff that I was doing was um, the old method or the old solution was you've got to sell some short stories to a market and then build a name for yourself and then maybe you'll be lucky enough that an agent or an editor may take interest in you. Um, but I got to a point where I had sold dozens and dozens of stories and either I got payment and copy or five dollars or then I was starting to work my way up to five to six cents a word, which is 
professional rights for stories. And I was working in uh, books, uh, bookstores uh, my entire time. I moved around bookstore to bookstore to bookstore. And it was uh, in 2004, I got, I got um, people would say, so, so you're a writer? And I'd say, yeah, I'm a writer. And I'm working in a bookstore. I'd say, well, where's your book? Where, do you have any books? I, can, I, can I read them? And I went, yeah. So uh, you got to get into a car and you got to drive six or seven or eight hours uh, across the border into Michigan. And if you get over there, before the end of the month, you will find my, the magazine I'm in, Circulation 500 Copies. But you better get there soon. And, and that was, I got tired of that because no one's ever going to do that. So I actually, uh, in 2004, I, I self-published before self-publishing was kosher. Um, back when you would be as willing to admit that you masturbate as you would be to self-publishing. It was like an icky, dirty thing. And so I, uh, I used Ingram Lightning Source. It was kind of like um, Ingram Spark is like the Fisher-Price Fisher version of the print on there, like it's prettier and easier to use and there's less buttons. And so I used Ingram Spark to self-publish a book called One Hand Screaming, which was self-published, but I also felt justified in this vanity publishing project because 80% of the stories were had already been selected out of a slush pile, had already been edited. So I already had that, you know, that stamp of approval uh, that we, we so long to have from traditional publishing, even if we are successful six-figure or five-figure authors. And so I got into self-publishing in 2004. Uh, that kind of led to continued career in book selling that led to running a print-on-demand machine in a university bookstore that I managed. And that's when I got involved. I was early into Kindle and early into Smashwords, which were the two main sort of places. Couldn't get in directly to Kobo without pulling your eyes out. Um, I was in Google in the early days too. And then I ended up getting hired by Kobo to come up with a solution for self-publishing authors like how are we gonna make it easier for them and, and that was Kobo Writing Life which is you know my baby I'm still very proud of them. I'm very proud of the amazing people who work at Kobo and I and obviously have a, a huge passion for that and then I guess lately I've sort of migrated away from that because I kind of did what I needed to do at Kobo one in every four books that sold at Kobo was coming from Kobo Writing Life that doesn't include Smashwords and draft to digital and and publish drive and street lib and all of the hundreds of other aggregators So if you actually took into account all of the self-published books I'm willing to bet that one in every three books that sells on Kobo is a self-published title, which is pretty significant And so you have to you have to think that the stats are probably the same on Amazon and on um, uh, Apple and, and nook and stuff like that because really good content is really good content no matter where it comes from um, And then I got the opportunity. I, I tried to be independent for a long time, or for at least a year, I made it almost a full year, and I and I, I bumped into. Um, I was talking to the guys from Draft to Digital, who I'd always loved and respected. Heck, I was using Draft to Digital to convert my books for free, even when I worked at Kobo, because it was better than Kobo's conversion tool. So, um, I agreed to come on board because I kind of thought now I can help people beyond Kobo, not just because it's great. I love Kobo, but I wanted people to be successful everywhere. And what I love about Draft to Digital, and what I love about what I get to do with Dan and Kevin and the other folks that you probably know publicly is I get to work on these really cool things and, and see what we can do to help authors. So, so that's, that's kind of my, um, I would call it my Cliff's Notes version for, for American folks. Cliff, no, it's Coles in Canada for any Canadian listeners, the Coles Notes version or the Reader's Digest version, which we all know. Or if you were poor in college, it was Spark Notes. Or or just Spark? Oh yeah, Cliff Notes is is uh, the UK and, and Spark Notes is the US, right? Well, there was or, there's Cliff Notes here too, but Spark okay. Notes is like the one you could get online for free. Oh, there you go. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you've been in the publishing industry in a number of of uh, capacities for for a long time. 
And by now, we've made it pretty clear on the show that uh, to be a successful indie author, you've got to be, you've got to have a good mind for business. Do you feel that there is anything about the book industry that makes it distinct from other businesses, or do all the same rules apply? Um, I mean, business is business, right? And 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 I think one of the things we forget, we know, and we're passionate about the stories we tell, and we know that we have the power to to push those buttons. But I think we often forget, um, we often forget about the um, the importance of, of of business and remembering that as passionate as we are, as storytellers you have to remember that every other player in this is uh, treating it like a business. So Amazon is treating like a business and Kobo is um, and Apple and Nook and all the other players. And, and when you're cultivating relationships, uh, I, 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 20 books to 50 K I introduced uh, Robin Cutler from Ingram spark to uh, Robert uh, Slater, who's an author I met when I was at Kobo, I met him in a village books, an independent bookstore in Washington state. And it was an amazing thing that, Robert reminded me of what the bookstore said. The bookstore said, you're the first person who's ever approached us and asked what you can do for us rather than what we can do for them, for you. And they are hugely supportive of everything he does. Uh, now, because through Kobo, they can sell his eBooks on the website, but they also carry his, you know, it, well, it would be, uh, would have been create space books or, or, you know, non-returnable POD titles because he has that relationship. So I think, the thing we tend to forget in an algorithm-based world, and, and Amazon is the world's biggest player and the algorithm rules, or as I like to say, the inmates run the asylum, but we forget the relationships. And, and I'm constantly reminded of that because the reason I go to a conference like 20 Bucks to 50K or Andrea and I were at the WMG Business Masterclass, also in Vegas a few weeks earlier. Uh, so, so wait, and, and Joe and Lindsay and I were at NIC. And so we were all together somewhere recently. But the reason, one of the main reasons we do that isn't necessarily for the learning, which is fantastic. It's for this relationships that we have with other authors and relationships we have with, you know, with um, BookFunnel and, uh, and with the various retailers and with the various players in the industry. And we get to talk to Dave Chesson one-on-one and pick his brain or, or, you know, not only, you know, uh, drink with David Gogren, but learn from him at the same time too. So I think I, I probably got sidetracked uh, from that, but I think if I, if I, you know, maybe accidentally answered your question somewhere in that rambling, I think, I think it's the relationships that we, we, we lose sight of. Yeah, that, that, that's about what I was looking for. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. So what you're doing is telling all the introverts listening that they need to get out and network with other people. <laughs> and that's really hard because, Lindsay, I mean, I, I, we, we talk about this because I am actually, uh, when I walk into a room, I will, I will run to the corner and I will not go approach people. I hope people approach me. Thank God lots of people do because I'm giant and you can't miss me. <laughs> Um, you know, big bald head shining in the back of the room. And that's, that's even what I did at 20 books. I mean, unless I really knew someone and said, Oh my God, I haven't seen you in a while. I, I mostly just come in and shuffle off to the corner and hope that someone comes and says hi, but that, and I recognize that's hard, but you don't have to have an in-person relationship. It's about the, it's about the things that you tweet or it's about the things that you post and how you treat other people with respect. Right. Um, I think that goes a really, really long way. When I, when I see an author helping other authors, I want to help that author. And I've always had that as a bookseller. The minute I see people being compassionate and willing to pay it forward and, and, and spread the love for, for their fellow person in the community, I want to help that author. And I, and I know that that's a pervasive uh, element that, you know, kind of 
sticks to if I could speak on behalf of those on the on the curate, curatorial side of things, the librarians, the booksellers, the the retailers. Because I mean, apart from Amazon, everyone else is everyone else is doing manual merchandising. Apple's doing it. Nook is doing it. Kobo's doing it. Google, who are coming in January, and I'm so excited they're actually going to be doing stuff. And Lindsay, I'm not sure if you had a chance to chat with the Google people, but I'm excited about what they're going to be doing. Yeah, I actually did. And um, we're recording you because of the Thanksgiving stuff coming up before we do our 20 books kind of roundup. And I do have some notes from, um, they, had, they had four guys, no, two, two girls and two guys okay. at the conference. And I have some notes about what's going on with Google Play. So a little teaser for next week, guys. It's a great teaser. I can't wait to listen to it. Can I listen to it now? Well, as soon as we record it. If I'm in the future, I could listen to that one before I listen to this one. You'll have to talk to the sci-fi people out there. <laughs> We're going to have to be bending some time. <laughs> so I am curious as, you know, you may, uh, as draft a digital guy and Kobo guy previously, you have, of course, need to tell authors, well, not need to tell, but you probably feel that you should tell authors to go wide in all the bookstores, um, you know, not to have their eggs all in one basket. And, and from a business sense, it makes sense to not rely completely on one retailer. But I have to ask yeah. you, the author, I think you've mentioned that you've at least played with KDB Select before. So what are you doing with your own stuff? Yeah, first I'm going to say that um, I actually think every single author and every single book every author releases, every series has its own answer and its own solution that's unique. And I often, because I, I do independent consulting still as well, because I'm technically part-time with draft to digital I actually look at the author and work with them and, and, and Amazon's the best place to start because it's the biggest bookstore. So even though I am partial to wide, I understand how people can make a lot of money. When I was sitting in the Kobo office creating, or I think I just launched Kobo Writing Life or it was in the process of launch. I can't remember where in the history it was. I got the notification because I've been a Kindle uh, direct publishing author forever. When I got the notification that they were doing KDP Select, Within three hours of the announcement, I had a book in KDP Select, and I have had it there ever since. I have also launched books into KDP Select, and I still have a, a number of titles there. And here's why. Any new thing that comes out, I want to try it. I want to test it. I'm very eager about it. And, and I honestly believe, and it's something that I taught my son. He's 15 years old now, but don't tell me you don't like a food unless you have actually tasted it. Um, and, and I'm not saying I don't like KDP Select. I don't like any company that forces you to be exclusive. I have, I've long argued that you can't call yourself an independent author. You're a corporate author if you're giving your rights over to wholeheartedly, the same way you would be giving your rights to a single publisher. Um, and I say that jokingly, but um, I've always had a book in, in KDP Select, and, I'm, and I don't like the idea of exclusivity, but I need to understand it. I need to play in it. I need to try to make it work. I need to understand because if I'm going to talk to authors about it, I can't just be the, well, you know, this rock music is all about sex and drugs and rock and roll and that Elvis shaking his hips. Like, you know, I don't want to be the person who doesn't understand and talks against it. I want to be the person who understands and, and helps an author figure out what's right for them. Um, and, and I love that about the D2D mentality is because at D2D, we're not forcing people to have to publish through D2D. We're not forcing people that you have to be wide. We're talking to people and we're helping them figure out what's best for them. And it's kind of like, hey, we got this stuff over here. Even if you are exclusive, we got some free tools. Use them. Go for it. They're there. 
right? Yeah, and we understand that you may you may use us. That's fine. But maybe one day when you know, if you want to go wide, you've tried our stuff out and and it should sell itself. I shouldn't have to sell it. Um, so, yeah, I've and I and I probably always will have at least one title. Not that I not that I play in the system very often. I'll, I'll I'll run some promos and I'll run. Oh yeah, I should do a free thing. Like it's not that I've been very strategic about it, but I've always always wanted to be in a program just so I can understand it. Because how could I how could I help authors and talk about it without ever having played in that area? Which I think is I think it's an important distinction. It's something I was always proud of as as the head of Cobo Writing Life and something I'm proud of at Draft to Digital is. You know, Kevin Tumlinson and I are authors. We're not only talking to authors about how to use the system, we're, we're using it too. And so our, our vested interest is how can this tool be better for us? And so I've always uh, believed that that's been a, a benefit to, to understanding it from the inside rather than just a corporate talking head who, um, who, who comes in and says cool things. And, you know, for years, you know, not, not to badmouth because I adore what uh, Amazon has done for authors, but um, one of the things that I think is, uh, has been a, a distinction is when I was on a panel with a bunch of people who were running these platforms, I was the only one who had used them all. <laughs> like, so I always thought I was always proud of that distinction. Um, and, and I want to continue to be, I want to continue to be somebody who's not just working in the industry, but somebody who's working within the industry, uh, as an author. And I, and, and to me, that makes a difference, but I'm a little biased. I kind of like me. <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, <laughs> Lindsay's comment is Mark is a corporate spy. <laughs> Apparently, I am. I'm spying on this podcast for my own means. <laughs> and actually, I'm. You're you're more compassionate about the reasons you you're in Kindle Limited. I'm in Kindle Limited because of selfish reasons. I'm like it's the second largest retailer in the world, and those readers. What do you mean second largest retailer? Um, just the studies that I've read, like, um, I don't remember, do you guys, Lindsay or Joe remember who said it, but like readers in Kindle Unlimited don't shop and they don't buy elsewhere. And so you okay. won't ever get them to download anywhere else. And so, right. Lindsay, do you remember? I don't remember. I know Nick Webb had mentioned that on our old show that Amazon's the biggest retailer and then KU's like the second biggest retailer. Uh, you could kind of argue it that way. So understandable. That makes yeah. sense. Okay, so you mentioned that sometimes you do recommend authors go into Kindle Unlimited. I mean, what yeah. circumstances would it be appropriate for a new or even an experienced author to use Kindle Unlimited? And you probably well, wouldn't ever recommend them be all in, or would you? I mean, what is well, okay. I mean, a lot of authors are starting off with one title, right? And 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 to be quite honest, there's a lot to learn. It's so overwhelming. So why not learn the biggest bookstore in the world? If you're going to learn one, learn the biggest bookstore. And I was talking to Rachel Amphlett earlier today, and she reminded me, she actually broke out on Kobo first. I mean, Amazon is still her biggest retailer, but Kobo was where she took off. Because I remember calling her going, Rachel, what did you do? Hi, I'm Mark, by the way. I'm Rachel. <laughs> what did you do? Because your sales took off, and I don't know what you did, because I want to help other people do what you did. And she's like, I have no idea. My books took off. Um, so it can happen on any retailer. But pick one. And why not pick the biggest one? And why not pick the one that, I mean, every podcast and book in the world talks about Amazon. It's why I wrote the book on Kobo because there's very few resources outside of that. Um, so I often think that uh, it's a good place to start, especially when it's, it's, it's only 90 days. You start off, you try it out. And if, you, and if, it's, if it works for you and you're making a, a, a ton of money, great. 
see how you can keep doing that. But if you're not making a ton of money from, especially from the Kindle Unlimited aspect of, of things, maybe it's time to branch out. And even some of my clients that I work with, we said, well, let's start in exclusive and see what we can do. Leverage the things we can because we don't have to worry about. I mean, when you're thinking about Kindle, you're only really worrying about the US and the UK for the most part. It's when you move to Apple and Kobo that you have to worry about. Yeah. I mean, Nook is only US too, but then you have to think about international audiences. So um, yeah, but I, but I think even an experienced author, if, if it's working for you, why would you change it? And why would I fight with you about that? Except for the fact that all eggs in one basket and stuff like that. I mean, I was at Kobo when Kobo turned off every single independent author after I'd spent six months gaining everyone's trust and we had to shut everyone down for you know, 24 hours. I've seen it happen from the inside of a retailer and I've seen the business reasons why it had to happen. That scares me knowing that anyone can shut anything off at any time. So that's where diversification of income comes in handy. And, and Andrea, you and I saw a lot of that at um, the WMG masterclass is the idea of multiple streams of income so that you're not dependent on one source. I think Joanna Penn says it really, really well um, when she talked about not wanting to be beholden to a single corporation when she was working that corporate job as an IT person. And, and I kind of take that to heart as well um, when I think about, uh, when I think about the, um, the, the possibility. But again, it's working for now, and so why not, why not leverage it to help an author out? That's a really long, I, 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 so I go on way too long with my answers. I'm sorry. I must like the sound of my own voice or something. No, and, and like you say, for the same reasons that I do, like I've, I owe my continued solvency in this business because I, I had a fairly wide stance and could absorb a lot of mistakes in individual places. But um, so it's fairly common for uh, uh, authors to shift their availability at some point in the book's life, either mm -hmm. starting off wide and then going exclusive or vice versa say for those two, what is the ideal method to do this? Like if you're going to start one way and change, I would start, I would start narrow and go wide. And, and one of the main reasons is, is as much as I love Kobo, they're the, the cause of a, of, a, of a lot of the problems, because when you publish to Kobo, you're not just publishing to their, whatever their availability in 130 countries, but you're publishing to the available 170 countries because of their retail partners. And that's a downstream communication between Kobo and FNAC or Kobo. And FNAC is one of the guilty players that is really slow to remove titles. So if you go wide, it's really hard to pull to get everything pulled back. Kobo will help you and, and they're amazing people, but but it's it's not easy. It's easier to start narrow and then go wide. Uh, the other reason about pulling back and then going in and out, I, I recommend, you know, mama's got a squeeze box she wears on her chest. You know, that she goes in and out, you know, the who, come on, I'm a, I'm a big music fan. But you can't go in and out and in and out because then every time you pull back, you're starting completely from scratch. And it takes a long time on other retailers. I mean, it used to, I would say to an author, it would take a minimum of nine months to make really good traction on Kobo. Nine months is three tours of duty in Kindle Direct Publishing Select, right, KDP Select. Um, that's really hard for an author especially when, when they're, they go from having extra income from Kindle Unlimited page reads and they're seeing a drop in the income and not seeing the return on the other platforms. And so what I saw a lot of is they pull back out again and they try it again. They go, oh, look, I'm making more money on Kindle. Oh, I'm going to try it again. They only try for 30 days and, and it's this self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so 
I advise starting narrow and going wide, not starting wide and going narrow. I've talked about often on here how I launch new series into Kindle Unlimited and I leave them there as long as I'm working on that series because it's just easier to get visibility on there right now and then go wide. Um, and I feel like a lot of authors, they don't want to be exclusive to Amazon. They just feel kind of stuck in the system because they do so much better when they're in KU as well. Right. But um, for those who do want to go wide, maybe they're working on a new series and it's inevitable that the older one is not getting as many page reads anymore. What would you say the best practices are other than committing? You know, like just decide when you're going to yeah. go wide, stay wide with that series. So uh, I think a thing that's important to remember is uh, don't, I mean, be, be fair to all your readers and all your customers. And you're going to have people who are Kindle Unlimited only readers, you know, as you guys said, you know. Uh, you know, it's the second biggest bookstore uh, is, is Kindle Unlimited. So when people get mad that you're not in Kindle Unlimited anymore, because, hey, I, I'm never going to buy your books. I want to read them all for free. And I use free in quotes because it's not actually free. But same thing with libraries. They're free, but they're not actually free. Although they're a lot more free because of the, you know, you're not taking $15 out of my pocket every month. Um, it's spread out over lots of people. You're going from only, only, select people who are privileged get access to my book for free and anyone can get my book for free because it's available through the libraries. That's a critical thing to remember. Um, so I think that's an important thing because you don't want to shortchange your Kindle Unlimited. The people you train to read your books for free, you want to make sure they still know they can get your books for free, but that you're letting more people get it for free. And um, so that's an important distinction. The other thing I think is, is thinking about the global nature and also thinking that a lot of systems are a combination of algorithm and manual curation. And uh, so with draft to digital we do a lot of promotions uh, with Kobo, with Apple, and with Overdrive, and soon to come Hoopla, uh, where we, we try to promote our authors and get them placement. And the first thing Apple will do, and I know Kobo, Kobo did it because I was there, Apple is just a lot more um, clear about it, is you know, if I, if I suggest an author, uh, you know, I, I'd suggest a title and an author for a promo for them. We nominate a bunch of titles. Let's say we nominate 50 or 100 and maybe they pick five. Um, they'll look at them and see if the author on their website is actually inclusive of uh, all retailers. And inclusive may mean having the, the up-to-date Apple Books logo, not iBooks, but the up-to-date logo of the retail. And Kobo's changed their logo 50 times when I was there as well the up-to-date logo as well as actually having links or a universal book link or some like a books to read.com universal book link from draft to digital end of ad. Um, but, or, or any other universal link that is inclusive. Uh, and I know there's, there's uh, other, other tools out there. So they look for those things. I used to uh, just an insight from when I was at Kobo, I would get angry emails from authors all the time saying, damn you, I published my to your platform and you've done SFA to help me out. And, and I, would, I would look at the signature in their email and say, go, go, go buy, buy my book on Amazon and there'd be a link to Amazon in their email. And, and I was like, I want to help you, but you're not helping yourself. And you're not actually helping your cause when you're pointing all traffic to one direction and you're wondering why there's no traffic there. I mean, it's, not, it's everybody's responsibility, not just the retailers. So I think that's part of it. I think when you're dependent upon learning the complicated and constantly changing algorithms of Amazon, remembering that there's other, there's other challenges in the world, that there are more, um, uh, what, what did Hamlet say to Horatio? There are more 
things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of and the philosophies on the shores of this big river. He said something like that, didn't he? I think it was heaven and hell. I don't know. <laughs> you're, you're talking to sci-fi fantasy people. We don't read those classics. <laughs> well, there was a ghost in Hamlet. That was a sort of a fantasy element. That's awesome. Um, so is there anything authors shouldn't do when going wide um, besides, you know, pulling in and out fast? Uh, something they shouldn't. Yeah, pulling in and out fast is, is a thing because it's not going to do you any, it's not going to do you any favors. Um, which shouldn't they do? Um, I think they sh also shouldn't just focus on reviews on Amazon or ranking on Amazon. And here's something. Uh, I've always said an important element for an author is to, to define yourself as a big fish in a small pool. Um, um, I'll use a, a physical example. I uh, One day I out outsold Stephen King, not on Amazon. I outsold Stephen King at a Costco in Sudbury, Ontario, because Dr. Sleep and my book Spooky Sudbury were beside each other. And I happened to be in the bookstore doing a book signing, and I took a picture at the beginning of the day. And at the end of the day, and my skid went down half and his barely moved. Now, that's... That's a funny thing to think about, but if I were to define myself as a guy who writes ghost stories against Stephen King, I would never win. But if I were to define myself as a, as a big fish in a small pool in Sudbury that day, I was the best-selling horror author, and I even beat Stephen King for physical books for a couple hours, and that was it. So I think the other thing to remember is, yeah, I'm number uh, whatever on Amazon, and you're so excited about your Amazon ranking. You have an Apple ranking, you have a Nook ranking, you have a Kobo ranking. And let's be honest, there's less people playing in those platforms. Your chances of hitting number one are way easier. So you can be a number one best-selling Kobo author for selling five books in the U.S. today. Come on, doesn't anyone want to be a, a number one, a number one best-selling author? Yeah, I uh, I still do. I keep a uh, a folder uh, that is called Proof of Awesome, and so I screen print any significant uh, achievement that my book has had, and it's like, ah, that's a coffee table book. I will buy Joe. <laughs> but uh, all right, so uh, changing topic a little bit. We're none of us are, are um, strangers to jumping genres on this. We I think we, we all have a fair amount of genre spread, but you've got a bigger one than many of us because you've got nonfiction of like two different varieties. You've got novels and you've got collections. So do you find that the different genres pre pre uh, present significant differences in the challenges of selling them? Yeah, it's interesting. I actually think that um, in, in with my Mark Leslie name, I'm not even going into the nonfiction businesses of publishing books that I do, but the Mark Leslie name, I do horror and I, I call it Twilight Zone slash Black Mirror kind of spec fic because it's not sci-fi and it's not really fantasy unless you call it urban fantasy. Um, but then I have the true ghost stories. And I find that I get a lot of people who find my print books, which are traditionally published. And, and, and I say tr print books and traditionally published, because I don't make it, I make very little money off the ebooks from traditionally published because they're overpriced and it's a ripoff. Um, but the, um, the print books are 25 bucks. And, and I may not make a lot of money off of those royalties. But I do get a lot of readers who found me that way and then go, oh, he's got some short story collections. Oh, he's got some novels that are eerie or strange. And so I think I probably have more people discover, and maybe because the majority of readers are still reading print. I know we're all ebook people, but in the majority of readers, not the majority of sales indie authors get, but the majority of readers in the world, if you ask the average American, 
uh, have you read a book since high school? You know, one in four will have said some, something like that. It's very, very small. But of the people who have read a book, and when you're not at a writer's conference and you're, you know, you go to an airport and, or stuff like that and you ask the average person who says they read, most of them will have never read an ebook. So 60 to 70 to percent of the reading population is still discovering print books. They may be buying the print books on Amazon, but they're reading print books. And we forget that because the majority of our income is indie authors. And the same thing for me, the majority of my income as indie author comes from ebooks. And so I think I have uh, an aid in discoverability of people who find me because my book is in a store. Uh, I was excited. I was in Vegas last week to go see a couple friends of mine uh, who, who um, um, Aaron Michael Ritchie and uh, DJ Butler were doing a book signing at a Barnes and Noble and I went to support them. And, and I was checking out local Las Vegas ghost story books because I'm always researching. And I found Haunted Hospitals, one of my, one of my books on the shelf. And, and it's like, whoa, cool. It very rarely do I see that. I, I saw that in St. Pete, Florida, but Sarah Rosen, independent author, available um, through Ingram Spark. She had three of her books were on the shelf in that independent bookstore, which is like amazing because mine were traditionally published. So they were available through easier channels. Hers weren't. Um, and, and I still think that there's discoverability that can happen in that environment that no Amazon marketing ad or um, BookBub is going to help with because there's still a lot of people reading print. So I, I think I get more discoverability from print to ebook than I get from ebook to print. If that, if that means anything. Well, before we move on to our next question, Mark was correct. More things in heaven and earth, Horatio. <laughs> I'm always impressed with people who can just bust out quotes from literature. Like, I read that book in high school. But, but Hamlet is my favorite play, and I used to actually, I taught drama, so I always started with that quote from Hamlet. All right, I've only got like, like two quotes that I can, like in my whole brain that I can remember, and they're very short. Mine are all Monty Python quotes, by the way. I can do that one way better than Shakespeare. Oh, Still I British. Shrek pretty good. We were talking there about Shrek we before were. the show. <laughs> That's my literary influence right there. All right. So you mentioned a couple times that uh, outside of Amazon, a lot of the retailers are have people merchandising and choosing things that they're going to maybe promote. What can authors who don't have a relationship yet with these guys, like how can they get noticed and hopefully included in some of those promotions? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a tough one. I mean, if you're publishing directors, obviously, there's ways to go through Kobo Writing Life to get promotions. There's ways to um, go through Nook directly. And uh, Apple, uh, what I like about Apple is they're not, they don't care if you're director or not, they're just looking for good stuff. Is, I know it's hard because uh, I met a bunch of people at, uh, you know, conferences <laughs> the last few months. And half the time I say, let me know about your new books. And, and at draft to digital we have, um, We've done it manually. Dan was doing it very manually himself through email. I came on board and said, dude, you're killing yourself. This is way too much work. Let's make some forms. And based on the success of the forms we've been using, we're now able to show the dev team it's worth doing the effort to build those right into the dashboard. So very soon we'll have a dashboard where you'd be able to prompt yourself for, hey, I write this kind of stuff. Or if, for example, we just did a Kobo holiday romance promo. And I, you know, I was talking to people and lost a couple of conferences and say, if you're publishing the Kobo through us, here's a link, go fill out the form and tell us about your book so we can collect them and then mail them off to, to Kobo and hope they pick some of them. And, uh, but soon we'll be able to build that right in. But I think, I think 
looking, you know how everyone looks at Amazon and you go and look to see what's trending and you look to see what's whatever. I think it's important to understand comp titles and understand your target audience from the point of view of the reader. And David Gargan talks about this brilliantly in the, in the reader journey, but what is, who are you satisfying with your book? Who does it appeal to? And if you can understand who your comp titles and authors are and, and what value you bring or what Venn diagram of this meets that, uh, I think is critical to understand before you even talk to anyone. And, and that goes way back to the beginning, even with clients I work with, is, dude, don't spend any marketing money because you don't know who your audience is yet. And you guys know this because, um, and, and I'm sure most of your listeners know this because they're smart because they're listening to this podcast, but, but it's, a, it's a fundamental thing we sometimes forget. We forget. It's like, oh my God. I mean, for years, I've been in the book business since 1992. For years, I was marketing a book to the wrong audience. And I didn't realize until I got a one-star review that when I read it, I went, oh yeah, you're right. These aren't scary. These are dark humor. Huh. How did I miss that? I'm supposed to be smart. I'm supposed to know this industry, right? So we, 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 even though we, we know the big things, we sometimes forget the little things. And sometimes the little things are, whoops, target audience is over there, not here. And that's why that book's not moving. So um, that's actually a really good point. Um, it's, it's true. It's, I mean, a lot of the times authors, they'll market a book according to the genre they think it is rather than the genre it really is. And, and if you're not getting enough downloads because people aren't being reached who would actually read it, then you're not going to know from reviews that you're targeting the wrong audience. So it's kind of a, it's hard to juggle, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So what sort of bad expectations do authors have sometimes when they're working with or promoting on other retailers? I think the expectations that they have is that their sales are going to be anywhere near what Amazon's are. Now, there are exceptions. There are authors I know who are uh, Google is our number one platform or Nook or Kobo is their number one platform or Apple. And, and every title is different. Every experience is different. Like I said, Rachel and Flip broke out on Kobo first. But I think I've always looked at it from the point of view of, you know, if you sold a book on Kobo, chances are you sold 10 times as many on Amazon. <laughs> so you have to compare apples to apples. You have to think about, you know, Kobo is a great retailer in Canada, but the population of Canada is the size of the state of California. So being number one in Canada is still a significant uh, less of a volume than the entire United States of America. So that's where looking at global markets, I'm really excited to see what happens with you know, emerging markets that are a lot more print centric than America is and the UK and, and places like that. Um, so there's, there's that element. And I think I lost my train of thought. I think I lost my train of thought. That's what I think. <laughs> and I was actually just going to say, um, authors, I mean, it's the long game. It's not just how much can you make in one month It's how much can you make in the long haul? Right. You know, in some months I, uh, my other retailers will get 50 to 75% of Amazon's um, downloads for me, but they're not all from one spot. It's all combined, you know? And so yeah. I think that's important for authors to remember too. Actually, and you raise a good point, Andrew, and you reminded me that the majority of your sales from Amazon are probably coming from the U S and the UK. And the majority of your sales from Kobo are probably higher. If you just compared Canada or Australia or, you know, uh, the Netherlands or something like that. Uh, so I think that's important. The other thing that I still think we forget about as authors is 
and, 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 and I know it's stuff we all know, but an ebook doesn't have to be 300 pages bound between two pieces of cloth, which is the traditional publishing's novel. And you guys know this, but we forget it because you guys know it so well. And we forget to remind new people coming to the industry that there is no standard format of, of size of book. We, we have an amazing opportunity to experiment and do bold, exciting things. And I know there's serialization and, you know, maybe it's 15,000 word, uh, you know, fast release and stuff like that. Um, we, we, even the early experimenters, sometimes they were experimenting too early and, and, and the world wasn't ready for them. So that, that's sometimes a problem. It's like, yeah, yeah, I did that 10 years ago. Yeah, well, Stephen King, Stephen King tried to launch an ebook in 1999 when I was a bookseller. I was all over it like a cheap suit. But Stephen King, even Stephen King couldn't sell an ebook in 1999. So even, even the t people at the top of their game, um, if they're too early, they may not make it. So it's kind of like, uh, it's that patience and persistence thing that I like to talk about is, yeah, give it another shot. You know, maybe the world wasn't ready for this. Yeah, I watch a lot of uh, like uh, math YouTube stuff and every now and then you'll see like, oh, this was considered to be an unsolvable problem. You'd have to do like 2 million calculations to solve it. And then computers came along and oh, well, we could do this every day of the week. So, um, all right. So it's fair to say a lot of people go to Amazon exclusively because Amazon's the biggest earner and they feel like it's a very attractive basket to put all of their eggs in. Uh, chances are, if you're wide, you're still going to be seeing just a couple of the storefronts make up the lion's share of your income. Should it be a goal to build your entire platform or is focusing on the heavy hitters going to have the bigger payback? I think you always have to remember the importance of how much time do you have to spend and where is it wisely spent? We know that it's more wisely spent on focusing on your readers and providing them more. Um, I'm not saying killing yourself and publishing, you know, a thousand books a year, but I'm saying you are better off working on the next book. I say this is a complete idiot uh, who, um, who doesn't do it himself. It's like physician heal thyself. Um, but I know I would do way better on my fiction novels if I actually finished a bloody sequel. God, I know that. I tell everyone to do that, but I don't do it myself. So, um, doesn't mean just cause I'm giving out advice doesn't mean I actually listen to myself, but I think, um, I think it's important to remember is like, yeah, I can focus on, and, and maybe you do it one at a time, the same way you approach social media. If you're not comfortable with a certain thing, then don't waste your time on it because if you can't do it authentically, you're probably not, it's not going to feel good to you. Um, and the same thing for, well, you could try this marketing on this particular retail and see what happens. So for example, I'm going to put my stuff in a Kobo promo and I get rejected. So I try again, or I'm going to try to do this book by bad, or I'm going to try to, get this sort of deal, or I'm going to try to push this, or I'm going to try to submit for that. Um, it's always good to try new things, but I think we can sometimes fall into the case of, I'm going to promote the heck out of this one thing I have and lose sight of the fact that I could have been working on another, another product, or I could have been working on a, I could have been working on a, a something just for my readers, my people, an exclusive piece of content I'm going to give to them to sign up for my newsletter. That's probably a better value investment of time than worrying about selling that other thing that's out there. I don't know, because I, I still believe that having a direct relationship with your reader is still the best thing an author can do. Uh, definitely a good point. And it's, 
I don't know if it's human nature, but like we have these readers and fans that we've gathered, but we're like, no, no, I want that complete stranger over there. They're <laughs> the ones I want to read my stuff. I'm going to focus completely on them and ignore my people. Yeah, it is too bad because these are the people who are with us and love us and they want more of us. Um, it's so easy to give uh, of ourselves to them. And, and we forget about that because you're right, Lindsay, we're looking for the we're looking for that other reader over there that we don't have yet. What's wrong? What's wrong with me? How come you're not looking at me? Yeah. So on, you know, probably on Amazon, especially, but on um, oh, I, uh, lots of places, I hear people saying free is dead, free doesn't work anymore. And I've kind of argued, you know, it's probably less effective on Amazon because a lot of the freebie seekers became KU subscribers and they can right. get everything there for their $10 a month. But on the other platforms that don't have a subscription service, except for Kobo's, Netherlands, <laughs> Kobo Plus in the Netherlands. Kobo Plus. Yeah. Um, you know, it, are you finding that free is still effective? Book one free in a series kind of thing. Uh, it's most effective as a as a a lead gen or a book one in a series. It does work well uh, for, for example, Sean Costello is an author that I, I manage, and he's a good friend of mine, and and I prefer him to be writing, so I manage his digital assets for him. And Sean's got nothing but standalone novels. But free works on, well, actually, it's perma-free on Amazon, too. It is the, the best way for us to get stuff into his world, but not as easy as, hey, here's free book one, and you get an exclusive uh, epilogue that doesn't appear in the original book if you sign up for a newsletter, and then I can send you deals and stuff like that. I mean, the newsletter, you usually use that secondary free thing or that exclusive thing to get them. But yeah, when I was at Kobo, um, we did stats repeatedly, and, and I can't believe that it's changed all that much since I left, but 50% uh, of people who finish book one in a series will go on to buy one or more books in the rest of the series. The key, and this is the thing I really want retailers to do, and I tried to do this when I was at Kobo and they wouldn't, is people have downloaded free books. I've downloaded tons of free books. I've never even opened them. How do we get people to open the books they've already downloaded and read them? Because if we get them to read it, 50% of them are going to go on and buy it. So it's not just enough to get them to download the free book. How do we get them to read it? And the retailers have that power. Nook, Apple, Kobo, Amazon know the people who have the books in their library but haven't read them. Why aren't they prompting them to say, hey, Andrea, notice you haven't bought a book in a while. Because that's how they do it. They go, hey, Andrea, you have a cigarette. I notice you haven't bought a book in a while. And I know you like mysteries. And you have this great free mystery book one in a series. Why don't you give it a read? I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm just trying to let you take advantage of what you already have in this wonderful, magical Kindle world of ours. I changed my accent three times there. Did you notice? <laughs> yeah, you did. But it's okay because mm -hmm. Southern accents are... Wait, you didn't do a Southern accent. <laughs> I don't know what I did. I don't know. He was in bed with a cigarette or something. <laughs> this after sex accent. <laughs> no, no, it's going to be my bourbon accent. <laughs> um, I was going to say retailers should have like this little thing where they yoink, pull the book back after a certain time if you haven't read it yet. <laughs> like you have. Yeah, it's like, we're going to take this out of your library because you're not using it. <gasps> no, I want it now. Oh, that yeah. would be brilliant. But again, I, when I was internal at Kobo, I tried to get the marketing team because they wanted to get people to buy them. Said, so if you want to get them to buy, show them the free books they have. Yeah. You no, know, it's like, hey, you rated this book five stars. Well, here's another book in the same category you have in your. Don't buy it, just read it. Right? See, that's a fantastic idea. Cause right. I mean, yeah. and my thing is it's every time I switch a device or something like that, like I, I usually read on my phone and I've got a couple of different apps for reading on my phone and my library changes when I change a phone. And so I don't see some of the books that I have anymore. And 
Yeah. It's just in like book funnel, you know, you lose the books that you get through book funnel. And so I don't remember, you know, necessarily which books I've already downloaded. <laughs> yeah. So let's remind people of the books they already own, because honestly, based on the stats I saw, if we can get people to read it, 50% of them are going to buy. Oh my God. I mean, it was, they actually have to finish it. We also saw it on previews, uh, which I think is important. And that, and you guys know what the previews, but we also saw that 50% of the people who got to the end of a preview hit the buy button at the end of the preview. Yeah, that's, that's really powerful. Good. Yeah, that's good data. <laughs> and I can't believe it's different on other, like Kobo's not like a unique retailer that's different than other. It's like, this is consumer behavior. Oh, I'm previewing a book. Oh, this is good. It's compelling. I have to buy it now. That's, uh, you know, that's the way we shop online when you can't pick up the book and flip through it. Yeah. Um, okay. So what sort of pricing strategies have you noticed work well on non-Amazon retailers? Um, I just want to remind people because people tend to forget that the, the, the thing you sign with every single retailer, Amazon, Apple, Nook, Kobo, Google, who knows, um, but at least the other ones that have been active in the, in the industry is you cannot have a lower price than any other retailer. So you can't just do a price promo on Kobo or on Apple. Kobo gets around that by offering those 30 or 40% off discounts where you don't have to change the price because the price doesn't change. So you don't have to change it. The consumer gets a coupon. But so if you drop your price on one retailer, it has to be the same price in other retailers. Now, Amazon is the only retailer that will automatically send bots out and change the price and then come over to your house and kneecap you. They're the only ones who do that very aggressively, which is how we use, but we use that to get permafreeze. Ha ha, Amazon, this, I know you only make a lot of 99 cents, but I'm gonna go for everywhere and you're gonna price match, ha ha ha. Um, so that's important. So I always talk about uh, automatically rounding your prices. I mean, draft to digital has an automated tool that rounds to a pretty price in other currencies. And all you have to do is select it, or you can override it, it's up to you. And what I tend to prefer is round your prices to uh, a nine, usually a nine nine in most currencies, in pounds and in euros, four nine or nine nine are acceptable. If you've been through Europe and, and in the UK, you can see because the dollar is so much stronger there um, that uh, that four nine is 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 the equivalent to what we see as nine nine, because psychology is that will always round up in our head. Um, so I think um, at least for the English language territories, thinking about the price there, and remember when you look at your comp audience. Consumers don't care if it's indie published or not. And I'm assuming, I have to make the assumption that people listening to this podcast already know that they need to have a tar on target professional cover and editing and all that stuff. So they're already, it's already indistinguishable from a book from Random House. The only distinguishable factor is the Random House book is a rip off $15 price and the indie title is $5. What I saw on Kobo and what I believe still exists is there is a, there's a happy medium. There's that Goldilocks price somewhere in between there that I think indie authors devalue their work in many, many ways based on, because they only look at the U.S. and what's selling in the U.S. And they don't necessarily either walk their price up, like in the case of uh, epic fantasy where it's longer um, or, or in other genres like romance where you're probably going to go a little bit lower because people are reading two books a day. Whereas with an ep epic fantasy, they're not, not they're, they may be voracious, but they may not be able to eat them the way I eat Big Macs, right? Like six or seven a day. I used to. I'm not anymore. I'm healthy now. <laughs> not me. Uh, <laughs> uh, on the same subject, and based on what you said, I think I know what the answer is going to be, but there's a couple of different um, 
uh, thoughts, schools of thought on backlist pricing. Like some yeah. people like to leave a series at full price for as long as possible or just leave it full price always, except for potentially the first one. Others like to have a, a like a promotional or a permanent price drop on older books and then try just, just to get more people into the funnel for the full series. Right. What would you recommend in that regard? Um, there was an old, uh, there was a bookstore in the hometown I grew up in uh, called Bay Used Books. And they had a little stamp they would put on their books and it said, a book you've never seen before is a new book or book you've never read before is a new book. Backlist is a legacy publishing industry term. When you traditionally publish, the publisher only cares about your book for the first six weeks and then they don't care about it at all. Um, a backlist means nothing in, 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 a, in a world where it's not about shelf space on a store. You know, a book I published in 2004 is frontless to the person who's never read it. So you could be giving away way too many of your books for free or for little money. Whereas somebody reads one of your books and goes, oh my God, this Joe is amazing. I got to read all of his books and they're, they're going to pay whatever I buy. There's authors I buy on site. I don't care when Michael Connolly releases a book, I'm buying it, you know, so that, that I don't, I don't even look at the price. And, and that's the thing we forget about because we're writers, right? We, we were talking about, um, I think it was at the business masterclass, Andrea, when, when we had an IP person on the stage and she said, you writers are all sounded like a bunch of abused spouses that yeah, you're used to being abused by publishers. Yeah. That and I would argue that and we're used to being abused by Amazon. Amazon's the abusive boyfriend that we keep coming back to because, but they still love me. They give me money. I'll let them abuse. So we as authors, uh, as creative people, we, 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 we belittle ourselves so often and we forget how good we are because we make shit up. And am I allowed to swear? Uh-oh. We make, bleep you up. <laughs> we make poo-poo up and people buy it. Um, and, and that's magic. But that's what the big name authors do too. So I think sometimes we devalue our stuff by calling it backlist because backlist is related to windowing and hardcover, trade paperback, mass market, and all that like lower priced items, which is what traditional publishers do. And I think indie authors have, have a, an ability to set new standards in the industry. And, and the standard was the John Locke 99 cent would sell a lot of them. Yeah, I get that. But we have to, we have to, uh, to be sustainable. I think we have to value our content and value the fact that when people discover us, they're going to want to, they were going to want to read all our stuff. And that's, that's the funnel. That's the win. And sure, that means you start off with some stuff that's that may be lower priced as a hook, but um, bulk discounting all your backlist for the sake of calling it backlist is kind of like, I don't know, I think you're shortchanging yourself. But again, there's no one, there's no one answer for every author as well. So yes and no. <laughs> I do feel that, um, you know, I tend to think of my backlist as like, I finished that series, I moved on to something else and it's more than a year old. But right. I think the people who find that stuff outside of me running a promo are like my fans of my new stuff. So they're the ones that are going to go buy it. So they're willing to pay their $5 in ebook. They already know they love your stuff. So like, it's not asking you to take a chance on an unknown. They go, okay, I read Lindsay's new book. It was awesome. Oh my God, she's got all this stuff and she's giving it away. <laughs> like Lindsay wants to, Lindsay wants to eat. Lindsay wants to, you know, uh, have uh, shelter and food on the table and, and martinis. But not six Big Macs a day. So but no, no, that's not. Or not, not Brazilian steakhouse stuff. That's just not. No, no, that's that's good stuff. That's <laughs> a little pricier than Big Macs. Yes, it was. <laughs> Thank you, Draft to Digital. We appreciate that. <laughs> 
So, you know, we talked about hopefully authors are like, you know, hopefully I can get some merchandising love, maybe get some promos. What are the ways that, you know, besides BookBub, because I feel like a lot of people go, why, just so they have a better shot at getting a BookBub, because yeah. that's like the known way <clears throat> to get books to sell on the other platforms. Are you, you know, I know you don't see this data necessarily, but are you hearing of ways that authors are advertising besides BookBub in order to get those sales on Apple and, and Coco on the other sites? Yeah, I mean, there are the other players like Written Word Media is, is a, for me, has been a very consistent, easier to achieve I mean, all of the other players tend to be lower bumps, but um, it's worth trying as many different ones as you can. And sometimes one works for one genre, one works for you, and it doesn't work for your friend in the same genre. Um, I honestly believe that long-term planning and content marketing is going to be your friend. I'll give you an example. Like I, I self-published uh, One Hand Screaming in 2004, a collection of short stories. I slept in a few unpublished, previously unpublished stories. And just to have it, I don't know how, because it's not like it, it's not like it was a, a bestseller of any uh, stretch of the imagination. I had a publisher send a photocopy of the printed version of the book to say, we'd like to reprint this in a, in a textbook uh, and we're going to pay you this much. And I thought that's all I was getting. I didn't realize I was going to get royalties. Every term I get money from this thousand word short story that I could never sell in the first place. And every term I get money for it over and over and over and over. And I think that in a sense, that was me content marketing because I self-published the book and I just put it out there. Someone discovered it. Someone discovered that content you put up on your blog or that free thing or that medium article or whatever, right? It uh, is related to, um, I, I remember reading an article on medium from an author and going, wow, this is a great perspective. And then his byline said he was an author and I went to his website and ended up buying two of his books. Um, I honestly think that the long-term content marketing uh, is a thing that's really hard to be patient about, but um, I've had people contact me and say, oh, I saw a speech that you did 10 years ago. It was a recorded, like, you know, it was on a Betamax machine or something. Uh, and I'd love to, uh, you know, I mean, this isn't related to, to books. Well, it's related to me talking about the book industry, but would you like to come and talk on this radio program uh, about publishing? So I think content marketing, we, we, we forget that we did something 10 years ago and it still can resonate now. Okay. So, um, is there anything we've been talking a lot about why, you know, retailers and everything. And if you're getting bored of the topic, <laughs> let us know. Um, but, uh, is there anything that you particularly love about any of the specific retailers or anything surprising that you've noticed lately where other retailers are concerned? Yeah, I think Apple is really up their game and is being really open. It doesn't, they don't care how you publish. They just want really good content and they're looking for unique stuff. I know that a lot of the retailers are doing the same. Uh, I know that Overdrive is interested in curated content as well. I think uh, I'm really looking forward uh, to what Google is up to. And that's a teaser for your next episode when, when Lindsay's going to share some of that. But I think, I think it comes back to I think it comes back to there's always opportunities and there's always new customers and there's always, uh, I was talking to an author like, um, you know, Diane Capri, who we all know, and, and we know she writes the, the hunt for reacher series authorized by Lee child. And, and, and it was a few years ago. And I remember Diane saying, I think I've tapped out the market. And I was like, dude, no one's ever heard of you. I'm not saying that to be insulting, but the average person and I hand sell her books on planes. Every time I see someone reading a Lee child and I go, 
So when you finish that book, what are you going to do? You got to wait a year, right? And Mr. Child's not going to release another book. It's like, I know 12 other books that I think you're going to love. Um, there's so much, so many readers who haven't discovered us. We think we've saturated the market. We haven't even come close. So remembering that is critical. Remembering that you're like, ah, I've tapped out Amazon or I've tapped out this retailer. No, there's always going to be new readers. There's always, there's always, I have faith that people will continue to read and love reading and that there will be continue to be new readers out there. So not losing sight of the fact that just because a market doesn't have your people yet doesn't mean they're not going to just show up out of the blue. Like Rachel Amphlett, the one day, I don't know why, but suddenly my books took off on this platform. That can happen on any platform at any time. And I really hope that we have all the platforms. I hope that they continue to, to stay in the fight for as long as possible. Please okay, so hang that, around, Nook. Please hang around. Yeah. <laughs> you said, okay, so Apple doesn't care how you publish. Are you saying like indie versus traditional or the type of book you publish or Apple or sorry, audio versus? Oh, yeah, thank you. Um, Apple, Apple cares about good content. They don't care if it's traditionally published or indie published. They also don't care if you're publishing direct or you're publishing through a third-party aggregator. So one of the things that I'm looking at experimenting with them as a draft to digital guy is, hey, can we just help authors no matter how they're published? Because if we can help authors sell, then everyone wins, even if it doesn't mean money to my bottom line, right? Um, so, so that's something that's kind of important. And, and I'd love to see more collaborations like that because I think the overall industry, it's that rising tide and all boats and stuff like that is... Do I really, am I going to help you only because I get something from it? Or am I going to help you? Because if we can help get more people reading more great stuff, they're going to, it's going to feed itself. Uh, and and I, I, I wish there were ways I could continue to force our industry to do more of that um, and not care, just care about great content and think about the reader and how we can serve the reader best, no matter how the book gets, gets into the system. That's critical to me anyways. That's my, one of my many biases. Well, that's a good one. Um, so one of the many big draws of uh, ebook distribution sites like Drafted Digital or Smashwords is that you gain access to a large assortment of smaller retailers. Like there's ones that we've discussed, but then there's a bunch of other ones that you sort of don't even realize you're a part of until you set up your universal book link and you see that there's a bunch of like, oh, I don't know what B-O-L is. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I guess sort of, I get sort of a continue on to my earlier one about the, the heavy hitters, but like you often are given the option to opt out of some of these. Uh, is there ever a reason to opt out of a smaller retailer or, or, or a foreign retailer? Yeah. Um, you, you may believe so. I mean, I've seen examples where authors have opted out of Kobo plus cause they believe that they could probably sell more a la carte than they made off the subscription. Uh, but, but again, it's the author's own belief of what's going to work or what's going to not, and it's experimentation. I haven't yet seen, I think we did turn off uh, a draft to digital. We turned off a particular, um, can't remember what it was, to be quite honest, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm old now and I forget things. But we did turn off a retailer because we did not see, we saw that it was causing more pain than it was helping authors. Um, so, but again, it's, it's completely your choice. And I, I, I still have books published through all kinds of different ways. It's like, this book is coming to this platform. This, so, you know, I've got weird check boxes and stuff like that. Um, so I think that's, uh, 
that's an important factor. But the other thing too, is just because I've never, I've seen people remove stuff from platforms. Well, I've never sold anything there, so I'm going to remove it. Well, I can guarantee you're never going to sell anything there. Why would you like, you're going to remove it out of spite. Great. More room for me as an author. Knock yourself up, kid. Um, so I think I've, I've seen authors make that ang angry non-business decisions because they're like, oh, well, they never sell anything. I'm taking it down. If you're not going exclusive to Amazon, why would you do that? Unless you found out that there was something really weird about the retailers not paying you or something like that. Why would you not make it available? Because I'm in Canada, I own a Kobo, and most of my eBooks I buy and read are from Kobo. So if you have a book out and, and I hear about it, I go to Kobo and I search for it. And if I don't see it, I'm gone. I go on to the next thing, you know, squirrel, shiny object. So there are other retailers in other places in other parts of the world that if they hear about your book, they just go to where they're going to get it. And if they can't get it, you move. And you never know that you've lost that customer. And that's part of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, but, and that's the, you know, that's the, what, what is going on behind the doors. We never know those things. But I would rather, I'm, I'm not a big enough name that people are going to go, I can only buy it on this platform. I'm going to go get a Mark Leslie book. It's not going to happen. I'm not Stephen King. They'll do it for King. They'll do it for J.K. Rowling. They're not going to do it for me. Uh, so I want to be where they're looking. And whether it's a library, whether it's some subscription service, whether it's um, a la carte sales, I want to just be available so I can, you know, so I can afford to, you know, I get that extra sale. Because I need them all. I'm still a five-figure author. <laughs> but for people listening that want to be on the show that are five-figure authors, if you happen to work at one of the distributors or <laughs> major bookstores and have a title like business director for authors, you know, that gets you in a lot of doors. And, that, and thank you guys for making an exception in my case. All right. Well, we enjoy having you, Mark. And just, uh, we kind of wanted to wrap up with some audiobook questions. We've been kind of talking ebooks, and I know draft to digital is now working with find a way voices. Yeah. And I actually thought, thought of find a way as a distributor already. So could you explain, cause I have like a series with them and I'm going to do another series with them. Yeah. What, what are you guys doing? That's, um, what are you guys doing? <laughs> okay, so I mean, one of the one of the key the key ways that Draft to Digital likes to look at things is what can we do to save an author time and energy so that we can help them go back to writing more books? Because if they write, because we only make money when authors sell books, right? That's how we make our money. So if we help them write more books, then maybe we make more money. So with Draft uh, to Digital and Find Away Voices, Find Away Voices is very author centric. We love them almost like brothers or sisters or cousins or something. That would just they have the same DNA. Um, and so when you are in draft to digital and you click on the, yes, I'd like to make an audio book. We'll punch your, your metadata over to save you having to set it up again. Yes. You're going to have to add a narrator and the square cover, which is different than a, a rectangular cover for a, um, an ebook, but we'll save you the $49 setup fee, which you would get to to find a narrator and the reason find a way has a narrator fee as opposed to acx which doesn't is acx is self-serve right you put up an rfp and hundreds of people can send you stuff regardless of whether or not they're qualified or appropriate it's find a way voices you actually get a project manager assigned to you and they manually go through and they try to pick the five to ten of the best voices based on what you fill out is this is what i'm looking for so that you can just focus on those my very first ACX project, it was like, oh my God, I had 
300 plus people. And, and, and I was like, well, these are the 20 I like. Like it was just, it was that sort of uh, analysis paralysis. I had too much choice, at least with find a way voices, they narrow it down to, you know, I was like, well, these of these six voices, I like these three. So I'm going to check with my fans to see what they like. And so I like that process. So we save the time uh, of the setup fee, uh, even and if, and if you're just doing your own, because you can upload your own audio if you've got it. They have guidance to help you with it. I've done both professional recordings with Findaway, and uh, where I've paid a, a professional narrator, and then I've done mine, uh, specifically my nonfiction or really really short fiction. And uh, and that's the other benefit of Findaway Voices as opposed to Audible. Audible, it's got to be at least fifteen bucks, or it's not worth wasting your credit on. I've made the majority of my money from Findaway selling. I called digital chapbooks or, you know, uh, 10 to 15 to 20,000 word short books, usually short story collections. And, and I'm making micropayments on the cost per checkout method through places like Hoopla and HighBooks and Biblioteca and Overdrive and uh, the other sort of more retailerish. Uh, retail library-ish uh, uh, or subscription-based platforms, as opposed to through Google Play and Apple and Audible and uh, Kobo and, and places like that. And that's where I've made, because again, if I do a one, it's you know 10,000 words for an hour and I have a 12,000 word book, even if the narrator charges me 200 bucks an hour, that's relatively affordable to have yet another audiobook property out there. Which again, when you go to my Audible page, because since, you know, we always talk about the world's biggest bookstore, you see, I have a number of titles. Only one of them cost me a ridiculous amount of money. All the other ones are paid off <laughs> because I made my money. I didn't make my money back on the 3000 plus that I spent on the very first audiobook I did, Evasion. But I've made all my money back on all the other ones. And so what I'm doing strategically, I know you haven't asked, but I'm going to tell you. What I'm doing is I'm taking those small books and I'm making more small books because what I can do is I can then remix them into a unique book because I'm buying all the rights. I'm not doing any payment splitting or rights sharing. I'm, I'm paying the narrators up front so I can actually do that. Um, I'm astounded at your ability to see the future, Mark, because you just answered my next question. <laughs> I have a crystal ball here. You see, this is it. It's, it's, I was going to say, it's one of the skulls behind it's you. It's one guys. of the skulls, that's right. <laughs> so my question was, what role does audio play in your business? And if you want to add to that. then Yeah, I think, I mean, audio, audio is so intimate. Uh, and what I've even done is I paid professional narrators early on. So Active Reader was the first book I did with Find Away Voices and paid for itself right away. And uh, Nick was my narrator and I've hired him for at least one more project. I'm losing track now. Uh, because I can go and update it like, like an ebook. And I was talking to to Will at Findaway Voices, who's the head of Findaway Voices. Um, people like to hear the, uh, I always do author's notes in my short fiction. People like to hear it in the author's voice. And I had Nick do it. And, and I just hired um, uh, C.C. Humphreys, who's a, an actor, a stage actor. He's been on, uh, come on, television's the fall guy, which I grew up watching Lee Majors. I love that. So I, I, I Chris is a friend of mine and I got him to narrate the book. He's got this beautiful, rich British accent and it just makes my words sound so much better. But I did the author's notes because when he sent the author's notes and I was like, it just sounds weird when you're saying I, I'm not nearly as eloquent as you, Chris. So, so I did that. And so I'm going back into my previous books where I had the narrator do the, uh, the about from the author. 
Um, I'm doing my own. And I've found at least, and, and I'm sure you guys encounter this all the time when you talk to people at conferences, is they go, oh my God, I listen to you. It's usually on Joanna Penn's podcast. But I, I, I usually, I've, I've heard you on so many podcasts, it feels like I know you. I think the intimacy, when you think about audiobooks, the very first sound we ever heard was our mother's heartbeat and our mother's voice. And Andrea, as a, as a recent mother, your children, right? That, there's music, there's magic in that. Audio is powerful. And, and when we speak our stories, when we share our stories, we connect with people in an intimate way that is beyond the page. And I know some people don't like listening to audiobooks because they prefer the voice that they have in their head. But I love audiobooks and I love listening to it. And I loved being read to when I was a kid. And I love sitting around a campfire and having amazing storytelling. I love when I go to conferences and we're all sitting around and people are sharing stories. There's a magic that happens there. Um, so I think we're at the cusp of the beginning of audio. I've been doing some amazing stuff with voice map. Um, I mean, in my recent episode of my podcast, not to plug it, but I did an interview with someone from voice map where you go on audio ghost walk, walking tours where I'm the narrator and I'm guiding you through the streets and I'm telling you about some ghost stories. I can't wait to use it for fiction. I think there's so many amazing opportunities to script. I have a voice double now. I can now, Hey, with a, I have a bit of a cold. It would have been really cool if I could just type my answers in and the voice double would have, would have come up and, and, and it actually sounds some somewhat like me. You were getting a little emotional there. I almost expected Did I? to wipe some tears. You didn't see the tears because there were definitely tears. <laughs> okay. So actually that's, that was, that was very moving. I, and honestly, I'm not being facetious or anything like that. It just makes me really excited to be getting involved in audio. So how can authors increase their platform where audio is concerned? I think it comes back to the way authors experimented with audiobooks or with eBooks go back and look at what you can do. Okay, I can't afford to do a full 80,000 page novel because it's going to cost me $4,000. Do you have a short story? Try it out. Check it out. Test it out. It's going to cost you a couple hundred dollars. Go and look at uh, Find Away Voices and um, uh, Wesley. Uh, it, it, it's videos and tutorials on how to do it yourself if you're willing to try and do it yourself with the right equipment. And it's not all that expensive. I think experiment is the key. Be willing to try it and be willing to say, hey, I'm willing, just like I'd be willing to throw a few hundred dollars at this ad, I'm going to throw a few hundred dollars and try out this just to see what it's like, just so you can, just so you can be part of it. And, and maybe you don't make your money back on it, but at least you learned something. The same way that authors have been so amazing and so forward thinking and trying new ways of exploiting the ebook, I think we can exploit audiobooks in the same way. I definitely agree. And uh, uh, one of the things that I noticed, well, as soon as I, I jumped on Find Away Voices as soon as I could, and one of the game changer aspects of it was that uh, you could set your own price as opposed oh to just God, having yeah. one assigned. Uh, uh, so like, well, just generally speaking, like what value does that have to you as an author? Oh, are you kidding me? Like this, the reason we're indie authors is we want control. We want to control our covers. We want to control our blurbs. We want to control everything. And you can't with audiobooks if you're exclusive to ACX because that's the one platform or one of the few platforms you can't. So I'll give you an example of what I did uh, with AI voice last year. I did the seven P's of publishing success. I released the book. I narrated the book myself, which took a long time. 
because it's, it's a short book, but it still took me along because I'm not a pro. <clears throat> I'm a professional writer, not a professional narrator. And so what I did is that book is for, available for six ninety nine because it's, it's me. But then I used, uh, Jim Kukrell had this uh, sort of voice synth company. Uh, I forget what it was called. And, and, and it cost me very little money to pay to have Brian, a British male, do a version of the voice. And because the cost to do that was so little. And it's a computer synth voice. And you can tell if you're really listening that it's computer synth. I released a 99 cent version of that book. Now, it's only available through Authors Direct through my website because no retailer yet accepts AI voice. But now if somebody wants the audio content and they don't care to have Mark's little giggle or Mark's little intonation or Mark's little change of voice when he gets passionate and wants to cry when he starts talking about audio, they can have me for six ninety nine, but they can have a more eloquent Brian, a British male who's somewhat synthesized and somewhat not quite human for 99 cents. So if they only care about the content, they can have it. Imagine in the future that you could buy an audiobook and have a choice of 50 different narrators. You know, I'd like to hear a drunk guy in an Irish tavern read this book to me. Like I, I, the possibility is is coming. And I think as indie authors, we owe it to ourselves to be willing to see how we can leverage that rather than the way traditional publishers have buried their heads in the sand and said, yeah, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, can you envision like when you play a game and you pick the avatar that you want to experience the world for? You can just be like, I want the British or the Irish drunk guy to read this story to me. <laughs> I did not mean to be stereotypical because I'm part Irish. Well, you know, David Gogren is the only Irish guy I know well. And, and he's always He sober. likes his beer. He's, yes. he's always sober when I meet him, but he's put in it somewhere. Uh, we'll have to get David on the show. He's, That's right. He's super informative and hilarious. And there's my dog and in the background a, <laughs> telling us to wrap up. He has a smashing beard too, doesn't he? He does. He has an excellent yeah. beard. Um, so my last question is... Uh, podcasting you as a podcaster yourself yeah. it seems to lend itself really well if you have uh, nonfiction and courses and things because you are establishing that relationship and talking about the stuff that you're probably talking about in your books right is there a point for an author to start a i mean a fiction to start a podcast hmm. or would they be better off doing kind of some of the things you were talking about maybe podcasting some of their first chapters of their book or um, short stories with their work? Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe it's a freebie saying, hey, as the author, do you want to hear my author's notes? I'll just read them to you and sign up for my newsletter, right? You can do things like that. I love what Joanna Penn's doing with books and travel because she's not just doing it as a way to sell books. She's doing it as a whole experience of people like her who love this. And it will eventually, that content, well, it's 10 years down the road, will sell her books. So getting into podcasts with the thought that I'm going to do a podcast and everyone's going to buy my books. I wouldn't get into podcasting for that. I would get into podcasting for the same reason that you guys are in podcasting. You guys are passionate about learning. You're passionate about talking with other people. You're passionate about sharing uh, your expertise and in and, and talking to people about it. And, and in my mind, the authenticity of that experience lends itself to a more credibility rather than I am Mark and I want you to buy my book and this is why I'm reading the book. I mean, I, I did a, I did a free Friday frights thing uh, for almost a full year where every Friday I did a reading of one of my stories for free. And then I, I did uh, nonfiction. So I alternated cause I had true ghost stories where instead of reading because the audio rights are held by the publisher and I 
don't actually have them, but I could talk about the research I did for the story for that chapter in the book. So I was kind of getting around the IP I'd already stupidly given away. And so I, it didn't work for me. Maybe it'll work because I still have almost a year of content of weekly content. So, um, but it might work for somebody else. I did, I did get a few people that loved it, but in my mind, not enough to make it worth the time and energy I put into it. So I stopped doing that. I'd rather continue to do, I'd rather put more energy into my podcast because my podcast listeners are, are, are interacting with me and they're giving me feedback and, and we have a relationship and I feel like I owe them, I owe them more because of, of the stuff they're feeding back to me. And they're asking really good questions that are helping me come up with better content. So that was a relationship that worked out really, really well. I don't think it leads to money or selling. I think it leads to relationship building, which in my mind is far more valuable than cash. That's a really good point. Um, okay, so we are going to wrap things up here. Uh, I do have a couple of questions because we did mention we would talk about it. <laughs> um, what are some of the basics of distributing with draft to digital that authors need to know? Okay, uh, the choice is always yours. You can choose. Uh, it's opt-in only, and you decide to opt-in. Yes, when we launched, like when we launched um, Hoopla recently, when you log in for the first time, you say, hey, we've got Hoopla. Do you want to opt all your books in, or do you want to do it manually? Again, to try and save you time. Um, price control, uh, price scheduling. You can actually schedule your price in advance. Assetless pre-orders, right? So you, can, you don't have to worry about the wrong version getting. Not, not all retailers accept assetless pre-orders, but that's a value. And every single book that you publish to draft to digital is automatically given a, a books to read universal book link. And, um, and you don't need to use draft to digital to use universal book links. I have uh, a books to read universal book link for every single one of my, every single one of my traditionally published books. So when I'm on the radio, I can say, yeah, go to books to read.com slash haunted Hamilton or haunted hospitals or evasion, like for one of my um, self-published titles. Um, and the other powerful tool that I'm really looking forward to leveraging is we launched reading lists this last year. And reading lists is, so I spent all my time, not all my time, spent a lot of time begging with Apple and Kobo and Overdrive. Please feature these authors. I love them. They're so great. These are good books. Please, please feature them because someone who's merchandising at your retailer is going to build a custom page and it's going to look pretty and it's going to be right up front and center. We all want that. Reading lists allows you to have that. Allows you to have control of the landing page. I did for Halloween. I was goofing around, I think, um, in a hotel room. I think when I was in Vegas, when you and I were there, Andrea, for, um, for the masterclass, and I created booze to read. Um, for Halloween and, and I did it because I was chatting with some authors in a group and said, oh, you guys have some Halloween books. I'll put them in here and I'll feature it. And what I could have done is I could have then done my BookBub ad to advertise all of these friends of mine. And I saw there was a bunch of great authors. Um, Julie Strauss is a good friend of mine and she's a group of a number of writers who are doing Ticket to True Love and they're all writing stories in the same town and they're all self-publishing it themselves under the same brand. And they're using that as a central landing page because that landing page then has links to all their other books. And they're not relying on Apple or Kobo or Amazon to merchandise. They're merchandising themselves. And, and, and I'm curious to see the more power we give authors 
the better off we the industry can be because the minute you open it up and say you know do good stuff and the readers will come the more power we give authors to 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 get in front of readers without having to wait for someone to approve their thing the more opportunity is right the slush pile moved from ren house's back room to an online catalog near you and and the good content prevail so i think there's more opportunities there in tools like reading lists and, and that that gives the author complete control and the crap will be the crap and the good stuff will float to the top and what can we do to monitor customer behavior to, to show the stuff that's that's lifting itself up yeah and just a quick note about books to read um i use them even for my books that are in kindle limited because they won't always be there and i want my readers to be used to either going through books to read or have since they've set it possibly to lead to the retailer that they want it'll automatically go there anyway and then it just saves me so much time yeah. you know updating links and things like that on my website it'll automatically go to the right geo so if they're in the uk it'll take them to amazon uk if you're exclusive or dot com or the really crappy dot ca one we have up here that nobody buys from <laughs> which they'll probably force you to buy from eventually like they did with uh uk I, no i hate doing that i like buying from amazon.com <laughs> <laughs> um okay so uh you've kind of already answered this a little bit but uh let's see what are some of the best features draft to digital offers authors i mean the ones that you use the most free book conversion automatic end matter like automatic um teasers for your next book uh, you could do an automatic copyright page if you don't want to do it yourself. I, I prefer to be in control myself, so there's some I don't use. But what, I, what I've long done is um, I long took the very first um, other books by the author from draft to digital I exported it, put it into a, a manual one, that, and it's all universal book links. Um, but again, I'm, all, I'm really anal and I do some stuff. But what I love about it is you can just select this. The templates as well, you can use the templates. There's there's all kinds of templates that because you know authors want to have the little drop thingies and a little uh, if it's a mystery or they want the raven if it's a darker story um, that's a really great opportunity you've got I mean DDD print is coming it's in beta we went back to the drawing board based on our beta readers and said not good enough let's go back and make this better for the people who've tried it because they've given us feedback and we don't want to release it to the general public until until they're satisfied. Um, and, and I think if you are a draft to digital author and you like something or want more of something, the best thing you can do is email support at drafttodigital.com and ask us. Dan and Kevin and I are out there and we're looking and we're talking to authors and we're bringing back feedback. But to be quite honest, uh, uh, Tara, who is in one of our Ask Us Anythings that we do every month, and there's going to be I, another one this, this this week. There's one every month. Um, she was she was uh, with us uh, one time. She collects that information, and we sit down tomorrow. We're actually having a business strategy uh, plan on what's what's next because there's only so many developers, and it's based on what we bring back from conferences, but it's based on the author experiences that our customer care team selects. We're actually listening, and to be quite honest, all the retailers and all the platforms. Are listening or should be listening because we only make money and we only we only do well if we do well by the authors that we serve um okay so i i've never heard this before you mentioned teasers automatic teasers for your next book um oh no not next book that? sorry for the next book to read like an other book that's already published you haven't but seen how, 
how do, I haven't seen that. No, how do they pick what teasers to put in? If oh, no, no, you pick it as an author, oh. but sorry. So you can say, oh, I want the teaser. And then there's a drop down that says this book. So at the oh, end of, okay. so for the, at the end of one of my short story collections, I may go to a longer book of short stories, or I may go to, for one of them is I may go to the full length book in that series. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that, that makes definite sense. Okay. So you mentioned emailing draft to digital. Um, I, my last question is deals with getting merchandising opportunities through draft to digital. Is it yeah. ever appropriate for authors to email draft to digital or, and, and if not, how do authors get their attention? It's going to be built into the, into the promotions tab that exists right now where you control promotional prices right now. It's very manual. It's Dan and I, and, and when we create a promo for right now, primarily we're getting them for Apple overdrive and uh, Kobo. And we usually, what I do is I created the one for, for Kobo last week. Cause I got Kobo merchandiser said, Hey, we're looking for stuff in this category. So I build a woofoo form, like a manual form. And then I give it to Cus Karen and say, if anyone's emailing, looking for Kobo promos, give this to them. And then Dan will email a bunch of people. And, and Dan and I are now starting to collect a master list where you say, Oh, you know, these are the people who are publishing to these platforms. These are their genres. So if we see anything, we just go tick, 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 send them off. Now, that's going to be automated soon. That's going to be automated sometime in 2020, if I have my way, um, where you, you don't need to wait for us to do that. You log in and, and, and if you say, tell me about promos, when a promo comes up, you get an automatic notification, say, Andrew, you're right in this genre. We got a promo on Apple. We noticed you're publishing to Apple. Do you want to, you want in? Click done as opposed to fill this stuff out which drives me nuts yeah um that's really good to know i didn't know that at all about it so listeners i should have told you shouldn't i <laughs> yes listeners um go to a conference meet mark <laughs> <laughs> email support at draft digital.com and say please please let me know i here's what i have here's who it appeals to i even have a form for pre-orders I just sell customers. You got a pre-order up? Let us know about your pre-orders because I'm building sales docs to try and sell your stuff to these retailers, you know, in advance. So I promise we, we're going to, we want to, we want to do everything we can to get, to get your stuff in front of the right people at the right time. Sorry, I interrupted. Oh, you're fine. No, this excited. is why I love the other retailers though, is they actually like the authors. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, nobody from Amazon is listening, so we don't we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> For now, Alexa's listening. Um, Lindsay, you wanted to ha you have one last comment, right? Yeah, I just wanted to say for those introverts that we were talking about earlier that don't want to do networking with the representatives from all the retailers. What I'm hearing here is all you have to do is network with Draft to Digital if you're if you're not direct. So. Yeah. And if we find good content, all we're really trying to do is help the, help the retailers find really good stuff that we think is going to help them make more money. And it doesn't need, doesn't mean you have to hang out with me at a bar somewhere. It just means you've written a really great book and you at least willing to email uh, and let us know about it or to, to make that little extra effort rather than just pushing the publish button. Um, okay. Sorry. I was just typing, answering Lindsay there. So my typing <laughs> probably went through. Um, okay. So where can people learn more about you? And, um, is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, so you can find out all about Mark at marklesley.ca. That's M-A-R-K-L-E-S-L-I-E.ca. You can, of course, learn more about the awesomeness that is draft to digital at draft2digital.com. And that's draft, the numeral two, digital.com. 
And uh, there's a blog and Kevin Tumlinson has done an amazing job of curating some content. The videos he has done, I mean, come on, Kevin's voice, come on. Once you, once you have that, you're, you're rocking. Um, some great walkthroughs and tutorials of, of tool, free tools we've had forever. Um, even the free conversion tool. You go to Draft Digital and just convert your book for free. You don't even need to publish through D2D. Heck, I was doing it was out when I was at Kobo. So um, that's where you can find out, uh, I think, more about me and more about Draft Digital. FYI, Kevin can do that after cigarette bedroom voice that you were doing earlier very well. <laughs> Awesome. Well, um, that's about it for the show. Uh, just to mention one last time, by the time this show airs, there will be four or five days left to get the storybundle.com forward slash nanobook that Mark is taking place in and me too. But I'm pimping Mark too, so it's not just about me. I'm pimping you, Andrea. Okay, we'll just pimp each other. Um, <laughs> okay, so everyone, thank you so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. Please visit sixfigureauthors.com with the number six for the uh, episode show notes and to leave a comment or to ask a question for a future show. And as an FYI, our next episode is going to be a recap of Liz Lindsay's thoughts on the 20 books to 50K conference plus a Q&A. And this is our first official Q&A. We might only have like four questions to answer, but if you have questions, go ahead and head over to our website, click on the questions tab and send it in. You can also join our Facebook group and ask there, and that is Six Figure figure authors on Facebook. So come join our group. We've got a couple questions set up where you have to actually be listening to our show to be able to join. Um, hint, the answer is Joe has the best beard. <laughs> For those that don't watch the audio and wouldn't know. <laughs> don't watch really the video. does. I could, can't keep my eyes off your beard, Joe. <laughs> Thank you. I have beard jealousy. <laughs> well, you have a goatee, not a full beard. So. That's true. <laughs> anyway, okay. So please go over to iTunes, Stitcher, um, Overcast. Isn't Overcast one of them? <laughs> Pocket Casts, all of these places <laughs> where, um, where you listen to podcasts and give us a review. and. We would appreciate a five-star review because you like us and listen every week. So <laughs> don't leave one-star reviews. <laughs> if they got this far, let's hope uh, we're like an hour and 20 minutes into it. Poor Mark's voice is dying over there. <laughs> let's hope they're enjoying it. Exactly. And all right. So we will talk to everyone later. Bye. So long, everybody.